0: Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Joining me on today's show is Stanley Goldfarb. He's a physician and the chairman of Do No Harm, an organization dedicated to protecting health care from divisive and discriminatory ideologies. He's also a former associate dean of curriculum at the University of Pennsylvania's Pearlman School of Medicine. He's written several pieces for City Journal on a disturbing theme the racialization of medical research and care, and the push for prioritizing black patients for essential treatments. His work on this topic and other important topics has appeared uh, not only in City Journal, but in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Post, Washington Free Bacon, and other distinguished publications. So today we're going to discuss the rise of racial preferences in medicine. Stanley, thanks very much for joining us.
1: Well, thank you very much for having me.
0: Uh, So on average, Black Americans have shorter life expectancies, worse treatment results, and higher rates of maternal and infant mortality compared with white Americans. In recent years, leading medical journals have run studies attributing racial disparities in medical outcomes to what is purportedly a discriminatory medical system. I wonder you know, what your sense is of those studies, and can we trust their veracity of, of methods and results?
1: I think, Brian, that they, they're almost all studies that show correlations. So they show correlations between race and clinical outcomes. I don't think that they've successfully identified the real causes, and I think simply because they haven't really look for the real cause. And the the real cause of disparities, in almost every case, is because of patients seeking care late in the course of their illnesses. So even speaking about um, the problem of Black uh, maternal mortality, which is substantially higher than whites, although in in Hispanics, it it turns out, somewhat lower than whites as well. So um but in even in those cases the the problem is that women, black women tend not to get prenatal care in the first trimester and they show up with complications of pregnancy rather late, which is almost the main cause of why they have difficulties in pregnancy. And preterm delivery is the lar- is the most important cause of infant mortality and therefore um, the the poor, terminal uh, prenatal care that they get contributes to the high rate of infant mortality as well. But one can go down almost every diagnosis and which is associated with disparities in outcomes between blacks and, and other racial groups, not only whites, but Asians and, and, uh, and even uh, Hispanic patients that uh, the the difficulty is really that when they first encounter the healthcare system, they come late in the course of their illness. And therefore, their outcomes are going to be uh, systematically worse. There really is no evidence that the way they're actually treated when they show up in the healthcare system is the cause of these healthcare disparities.
0: Um, recently, uh, there's been a push for matching patients and providers based on race, Um, proponents of what's called, I I think the term is racial concordance in medicine, uh, cite a a study from the American Economic Review that contends that matching black patients with black physicians is going to save lives. So, uh, you know, this is is sort of a related question, Is, is there any evidence for racial concordance
1: you know, there's a, there's a fair amount of evidence that black uh, patients will report some increased comfort with black physicians. And I think the particular study that you're, you're citing uh, is one which was a complicated study. It was done at Oakland, if, I'm, if we're talking about the same study. And it, it really showed that in a very short-term analysis, Um, that was done in a a somewhat sort of a controlled fashion, that it seemed that uh, black patients, uh, when given advice about preventative care by black doctors, seemed to accept the advice more more readily than they did when they got the advice from white doctors. But none of this really speaks to long-term outcomes, and none of it speaks to the issue of whether... um, This is a good. This is generally a good thing, and and actually, the largest study that was conducted, which is about 15 years ago, looked at at large databases and sort of compiled uh, the studies from multiple databases and tried to look at when the information was available and failed to show that over the long term, that black patients who were who were getting care from black doctors had better health outcomes this this could not be ascertained and and there've been other large studies that have really failed to show that there's any difference in the long term so short term there may be a little bit more comfort but here's the for black patients but here's to me this is the biggest difficulty with all with this racial concordance is because it's setting up uh, a system of medical apartheid really it's because i think if black patients are going to come to a healthcare system and say, I wanna have a black doctor, it, it would seem to me that that's, that's gonna allow white patients to come to the same healthcare system and say that they wanna have a white doctor. And I can tell you that when I when I was practicing, which was uh, up until a few years ago, if a, if a white patient came into our hospital at Penn and demanded that they not have any black doctors, uh, they were told that they should probably seek another hospital for their care. That this was unacceptable, and I, I don't think that we should make that acceptable now. And so, the, so the difficulty is: a) there really is no evidence over the long term that outcomes are different, and b) it's setting up a situation in which there's going to be real, you know, racial disharmony over uh, being able to to pick the race of your doctor.
0: Um, you, you've just written uh, written a very interesting and disturbing piece for City Journal, which we published last week, where you noted that two um, major organ transplant institutes, the Organ Procurement and Transplantation Network and the United Network for Organ Sharing, they're planning to change their criteria uh, for determining who is going to receive a kidney transplant in order to favor black patients. Um, You know, blacks make up a lower percentage of kidney transplant recipients than their proportion of the kidney dialysis patient population would suggest, is, again, systemic racial bias to blame for this racial disparity among kidney transplant recipients. And, you know, how how are these new policies, if they are adopted, going to affect the, you know, I I don't know what the number is, 100,000 patients uh, who are currently on the wait list for kidney transplants because there's just not enough kidneys to go around? You know, it's it's uh, it turns out to be a very, very complicated
1: question, but I'll sort of try to take them in turn. So for years, nephrologists, and I was a nephrologist when I was actively practicing, have sought to make sure that black patients had the opportunity to get kidney transplants because we know it's a much better um, therapy for uh, replacing a lost kidney function because of chronic kidney disease. Patients have a much better lifestyle and they have much greater longevity if they get a kidney transplant. There are two sources of kidney transplants. One is living related transplants, which is almost entirely uh, a transplant donated by a family member, although there are some exceptions to that, but the, the vast majority are that way. Or going on a waiting list and waiting for a cadaver, a, a cadaveric kidney to become available to you. And um, black patients tend not to be able to get their relatives to donate kidneys to them. Nor do they really seek kidney transplants as frequently as white patients do. And and they have been they have been queried about this. There have been studies of interviewing black patients that have end stage kidney disease, and they they. Some of them say they they were interested in getting kidney transplants, but a lot say that they don't want to go through a surgical procedure that is required for a kidney transplant. They don't want to get an organ from someone else implanted into them. And they don't particularly want to go through the very extensive evaluation system that's required. And to get a kidney transplant, you have to opt in. You You have to initiate the process. And the reason for that is because as you say, it's such a scarce commodity that it just needs to be given only to patients that are willing to adhere to a very complicated evaluation uh, process and a very complex medical regimen. Because if you fail to take your medications for a couple of days, you could lose the kidney through uh, organ rejection. So there are lots of reasons why Black patients don't get kidneys. Uh, And and the last thing I would say is it's sort of Falls under the, the comment I made earlier about seeking care late in the course of their disease. The patients go on kidney transplant wait lists several years before they actually are going to need a kidney transplant because it takes three or four years in many instances to, uh, to uh, get a kidney from the cadaveric kidney transplant wait list. And unless patients are seeking out medical care and being closely followed, they're not going to know that they have kidney failure because it really tends to be symptomless until fairly late in the course of their disease. And therefore, they don't get on the waiting list on that basis. If they get on the waiting list once they're on dialysis, they generally are older, sicker, and in many cases, their physicians may feel like a kidney transplant is not the best Um, uh, treatment for them because of their coexisting other diseases. So there's been a huge effort in the kidney world to inform black patients about this option and try to get them to opt in and to pursue kidney transplantation. But again, it's been a a much less common event compared to white patients proportionally. Uh, What UNOS and um, the uh, OPTN uh, are uh, attempting to do here is to say that any black patients that are on the waiting list we're, we're trying to they're trying to move them up so that their wait time for kidney transplantation is shorter and the way they're doing this is to go back and in retroactively and in one situation and look at uh, the way their kidney function had been monitored for those patients that that had been monitored and th- had decided to go on a kidney transplant wait list it turns out that the formula one of the, the formula that was used is, is one of the ways of, of assessing whether the patients are appropriate for the kidney transplant wait list that formula uh, required a correction factor which caused the, um, the physicians to uh, correct the assessment of kidney function in black patients to a a slightly higher level than uh, the formula for white patients. This was not done because of anybody trying to be racist. It was done because for for very complex reasons, black patients required this correction. It was totally empirically determined. And it was determined over and over again in many studies. But the formula was felt to be racist because it had this, this correction factor that was that was used in it that would seem, seemingly raise black patients' level of kidney function above the cutoff point needed to go on the transplant wait list. So it was determined that a new formula ought to be used. The trouble is the new formula now artificially lowers kidney function in black patients and raises kidney function in white patients. So... As I said, it's a very complex issue, the derivation of this formula and the elements that go into it. But suffice it to say that the old old formula was was fine. It just required two separate calculations, one for white and one for black patients. The new formula they came up with doesn't require separate calculations, but it's no more accurate than the old formula because it now introduces an error into, into the white patient's calculation and into the black patient's calculation. The net effect is a new formula is gonna be applied. Now this would be fine to do prospectively. Uh, You know, they wanna change formulas, change formulas. But unfortunately, they decided to go back in time, recalculate black patient's kidney function, artificially lower it to compared to where it really was. And this would qualify patients to go on a kidney transplant list and putting those patients onto the kidney transplant wait list at the time that they had the original calculation of their kidney function using this new formula that artificially lowers their level of kidney function. So in ways it's really an unfair change in the kidney transplant wait list using a new formula that was designed to allow more black patients to get on the wait list and now retroactively going back in time and displacing white patients that are on the kidney transplant wait list and making them wait longer for their kidneys in favor of black patients. Now, how many patients this is going to influence is unclear, but this is a, a requirement that's been uh, demanded of all kidney transplant units in the country. So there will be a, a reshuffling of the kidney transplant wait list and people who now think that they're gonna get a tr- kidney transplant in a relatively short amount of time are gonna have to wait longer. And how much longer is remains to be seen
0: now race based uh, school admissions and hiring preferences they've been around for a while now but the racialization which you're describing here in a way of medical treatment and research protocols you know that's that's a newer development um but the consequences of racially discriminatory medical practices are are going to be potentially dire I mean, they can be deadly for unfavored groups and degrade the overall quality of their medical care. And then, you know, more fundamentally or philosophically, they they represent a, a kind of profound undermining of the principle of equal treatment under the law. So I, I wonder, you know, how can we call attention to this development, the racialization of medicine? And what can we do to push push back to safeguard fairness and excellence excellence in medicine?
1: Yes, I, I you know it's a it's a, a very good question, and uh, and the answers are not forthcoming. You know, I would analogize a little bit what's what's been going on in the racial arena to this whole question of gender affirming care. And I, and I know we we probably it's it's a very large topic and difficult to get into. But the point is that in each situation here. Medical societies, professional medical groups have decided to adopt these ideologic stances really in favor of, in, in the case of gender care, you know, a controversial treatment and in favor of the, uh, this, the racialization of medicine, changing medical practices in order to uh, accommodate uh, the disparities that, that have been found in health outcomes. And, you know, Ibram Kendi has made the the famous statement now that past discrimination requires present discrimination and, and the remedy for present discrimination is going to be future discrimination. So the view is that these discriminatory elements need to be injected into the healthcare system. And I think that the important thing about this kidney area is that this is, I think, the first real example of widespread changes in the practice of medicine to accommodate an outcome that is felt to be required because of past disparities in outcomes. And, you know, it's it's probably not going to change anything because I don't know that it's going to encourage anybody, any black patients to go on the kidney transplant list, which is the real difficulty here is getting them to, to be, you know, candidates for kidney transplant, getting them to want that and to pursue it. Um, and so, you know, I think it's a very difficult issue. And and again, I would analogize to, to the gender-affirming care is we're starting to see legislative um, agendas be played out in various states. I think uh, Tennessee right now has several bills on the on the desk of the governor, the same in Florida, Kansas, Missouri, where uh, gender-affirming care is going to be, uh, you know, felt to be... Uh, not acceptable, not allowed in these states. And I think we may, we may start to see, you know, the government have to get involved in all this to make sure that healthcare is provided equally to all. Again, the pushback is, well, it's, it's discriminatory now, and we've got to change that. But, you know, that's, they're looking at an outcome and they've come up with a hypothesis to explain disparate outcomes without proof that the hypothesis is correct. And, and in fact i think there's there won't be proof because i don't think it is correct i think that's not the problem so they're creating remedies in an attempt to solve a, a difficulty but the remedies do not represent the, uh, attacking the cause of the illness in the first place and i think just let legislative um kinds of uh solutions may be required here yeah it's uh, it's
0: quite striking. Uh, Stanley, as a, as a last uh, point, could you just uh, tell us a little bit about do no harm?
1: Yes, well, do no harm is celebrating its one year anniversary right now, and uh, we're an organization of health professionals and concerned patients and uh, and others who uh, are interested in in avoiding uh, the healthcare system undergoing these kinds of discriminatory influences that that we've just spoken about. Uh, We have over 5,000 members now, and we've had over 1,000 donors to us. Uh, And we're a 501c3 organization. I don't get paid at all for it, so all of our funds are going towards solving these, uh, addressing these problems. Uh, We we have three sorts of uh, kinds of actions that we've taken. One is trying to inform the public through some of the op-eds that you spoke about in publications, Secondly is we've engaged in, in legislative arena. We have lobbyists and we've tried to enforce uh, and we've tried to uh, persuade legislators to support bills that have uh, pushed back against you know, the insertion of critical race theory into, into medicine and medical education. And we've uh, had some uh, legal efforts. We have several lawsuits in place, now four of them, uh, fighting back against um, practices that are discriminatory in medicine, the, the most notable one. I'll just mention one in the, suing the federal government, which uh, back in 2021 inserted into the Medicare system a, a plan to uh, pay physicians who uh, introduced a, uh, some sort of uh, uh, anti-racism protocol into their clinical practices. They would get extra payments from Medicare to see such patients. And again, this is, you know, really discriminatory and treating one group of patients differently just simply based on skin color. And uh, that lawsuit was enjoined by eight states attorney generals. So it's working its way through the, the federal courts now. And I think it's likely that it'll be successful. So we're, we're pushing as hard as we can back against this to aim for, you know, a colorblind healthcare care system. A healthcare system that everyone is treated optimally rather than treated differently because of their skin color.
0: Well, thank you very much. Uh, don't forget to check out Stanley Gofarb's work on the City Journal website. That's at www.city journal.org. We'll link to his author page in the description. And you can find Stanley on Twitter. It's at one, spelled out O N E, the number one iron. At one. Numeral One Iron. You can also find City Journal on Twitter, at City Journal, and on Instagram, at City Journal underscore MI. Uh, And as usual, if you like what you've heard on today's podcast, please give us a nice rating on iTunes. Stanley, thanks very much for coming on. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.